You are now tuning in to the Own the Build podcast. Join Sealing's very own Paul Hemming, where each week he interviews experts from the world of construction and asks all the important questions around intelligent construction management. Hello and welcome to episode 61 of Own the Build with me, Paul Hemming. The title of today's show is What Can Construction Learn From Other Industries? And we are joined by a doctor, Dr. Oliver Jones, who is Research Director at Ryder Architecture. They're a big, award-winning international architecture practice. Welcome to the show today, Oliver. How are you doing? I'm brilliant, Paul. Thanks. And it's an absolute pleasure to be on your show. So thanks for inviting me. Oh, it's our, it's our pleasure, and all the listeners will be listening to another delightful northeastern accent in their ears. That's it's like <laughs> London buses, two 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 very rapidly after one another. Where are you from? Uh, based up here in Newcastle, and, and clearly clearly heralded from Newcastle for quite some time, although technically from York. So we'll see. Oh, really? Okay, you've got. I have to say, you've got a very nice soft. Accent. Oh, that's, that's very kind of very kind of you, Paul. <laughs> I'm a big fan of accents. I'm a big fa- big fan of accents. So you are our first doctor on the show, and actually, I'm really excited to have a conversation with you because I think you are our first. I don't want to put anyone else's nose out of joint, but you are our first professional that we've had on the show. We're on episode 61, and you're the first professional who comes from a really academic and uh, research intensive. Uh, background so i'm really interested to explore that and then how that impacts your thinking with um construction and architecture in the world that we operate in so tell us a little bit about yourself introduce us to you yeah absolutely i i guess part of history is that i trained as trained as an architect went out into industry worked for a little while actually here at rider architecture where i've now returned to then went back into academia uh, was there for nearly 10 years, so ran the architecture programs at Northumbria University, and then uh, through a, a number of sort of it, uh, research and consultancy gigs with AEC Industries uh, that I was doing at the time, reconnected with Ryder, and we were looking at their research maturity and, and innovation maturity as a business, and, and ended up coming back here and, and taking on the role of research director. and. Now, we're based here in Newcastle. That's where our head office is. There's other offices in London, Liverpool, Glasgow, and Manchester. You now. stick it in the northeast, though, do you, Oliver? Well, yeah, I get about, I get about <laughs> one. Uh, and then we're in Vancouver, Hong Kong, and Amsterdam as well. So the whole point of my role currently is about harnessing that research power and those lessons learned across the business and, and getting excited in some really interesting, really exciting research projects. Awesome. It sounds sounds really fascinating. I'm going to plead a little bit of ignorance here. Won't be the first time. Will not be the last. Could could you explain the job description of a research director at an architectural practice such as the one you're at? I never worked. I always worked at contractors, so I'm interested to know what on earth a research director does. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I guess one of the things that came to light w- with with my work with many AEC businesses actually was that you know the guys that are doing it right are, they've often got some uh, describe it as a, almost a firework analogy. They've got some amazing p 
people in the business who are really pushing boundaries and pioneering in different places and starting really interesting initiatives. But there's often lacking a strategy that underpins all of those um, flashes of brilliance. And, and, and a consequence of that is that you might have somebody doing something fantastic um, over in Glasgow or Vancouver. But how does that tie into a bigger strategy? How do the things that they're learning and the things that they're exploring then feed back into the business so that everybody knows about it and also that we're all pushing in one direction? Because what tends to happen when there's nobody managing that situation is you have the flashes of brilliance, they last a moment in time, and then it dissipates just like a firework. So where where we're at now is that part of my role is is to work with people across the business and who are doing some amazing projects uh, across the breadth of architecture and construction and finding those opportunities for innovation and research um, that are happening in different countries and then making sure that that knowledge is shared across the business. The other part of it is that there's lessons to be learned. So, you know, let's not let's not make mistakes in one area of the country on a project two or three years ago that we might not learn from. Um, and then we'll repeat the time and the wasted effort in making the same mistakes all over again. So it's about knowledge management and knowledge sharing. And then the final part is is very much sort of outward facing and, it, and it's about really packaging our uh, research and innovation so that we can be seen as, uh, as thought leaders and, and pioneers in the field and engage um, a wider collection of external companies and businesses, you know, academic institutions, uh, think tanks, innovation accelerators, all of the really interesting people that are on the edge of our our uh, sector, uh, so that we can make what we do way better. And sounds like a cool job, yeah, well, to be honest. It looks like you're 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 a pretty relaxed, laid back looking kind of a dude, to be honest. Well, yeah, that's cool. just the way I look on the outside, Paul. I'm an absolute mess on the inside. <laughs> you're burning up inside. <laughs> no, that's really cool, and it's it's funny what you say about you kind of describe that you're a business that is an international business, but even within the UK, you've got four or five offices. I think that you mentioned, but you still you kind of described there people working in silos people working on a project and then that knowledge share not necessarily hitting another department etc definitely not going into the other countries and that is the problem we've talked about it on this podcast a lot with loads of different people from loads of different areas of construction or architecture and it's exactly the same because we're all on projects there's a little project team here a little project team here you never get together again so much knowledge is lost and so what i'm understanding is as well as pulling together all these interesting bits of research and development you're also trying to pull just knowledge all together in your organization and share it yeah absolutely and and, and addressing addressing some of those industry-wide issues that, that you've you've rightly flagged you know construction for a long time has been crying out to be reinvented it's it dissipated, it's siloed, you know, all of the things that we get leveled at within the construction industry that, that are leveled at us around us being slow to adopt and slow to change and Luddites in a fashion is, is absolutely categorically true for some of us. But in actual fact, construction's probably, I say this many, many a time, but construction is absolutely the most exciting sector to be in right now. You know, it touches. Why do you it, think that? It touches everything, you know, it, it, we're, we're at the we're at the heart of so many global issues. So the climate emergency, everything that's happened around um, how how do we reach net zero? How do we address net zero? Public health, everything that's happening with COVID. You know that that's directly related to the environments that we live in and work in and our cities. You know the the issues around um, how do we create social value? 
Well, that that needs to be contained within an environment. And then there's bigger digital disruption issues and productivity and quality issues that are related to the environment that all happen in the scenes that we set and, and, and we create. Um, so I think there's a real opportunity there for construction and construction sector professionals to be engaged in some of the latest thinking and, and, and with some of the smartest people in the world to, to, to push us on, you know, to, to, to take us to the next level. No, I completely agree. I can see that there is an energy and a passion in you, Oliver, as well, to do that. I remember you telling me when we spoke offline a few weeks ago that during the first lockdown, you went on a bit of a uh, journey, let's say, where you, where you wanted to go and unearth all of these interesting people from different uh, sectors and industries. But, you know, I can see a little smirk on your face. What, what, what was happening? Oh, I, th- I think I think um, were you in a strange strange <laughs> headspace like the rest was, of us I'd probably I'd probably sat in my garden for the th- 300th time <laughs> I'd probably made my 2000 it was a nice spring that back then wasn't it <laughs> it was a beautiful spring as they say and and that was that really set the scene you know I thought it just dawned on me one day when I was sat there going hang about if I'm sat here and I've got all of this time at my disposal there's other geniuses just there's, like me sat down. <laughs> just... What is everybody else in this huge global lockdown doing? Um, so I just started. I, you know, I climbed out of my my YouTube hole and 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 started scouring the internet for for everybody that. I just thought, you know what, these guys are really, really interesting. Wouldn't it be amazing to speak to them? I never got a call. I never got. I never. Well, you're, even on got a you're on the list, man. But, but the lockdown ended. So, <laughs> I've just went a long so, way down. Um, so, uh, and it was. I'm not hurt. It at all, was honestly. well. It was. It was people that you just wouldn't really uh, consider. You know, it was. It was like I've said to you. It was, that that makes sense that you would have considered me then if it's if it's people that you wouldn't consider. <laughs> I mean, I guess I guess I've always thought that there's a lot of people in the wider arts and sciences, and it was in the original RIBA charter. I remember saying that to you. That the whole point of of, of architecture was that it would we, we look to connect with the wider arts and sciences to create a better um, public realm and 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 an environment to live in. And I just I feel like we lost that. We, you know, we totally lost that as a profession. Arguably, for a hundred odd years, we've become increasingly self-referential and I just thought this is an amazing opportunity when everybody's locked down globally I know there's people who are neuroscientists and marine biologists and microbiologists and chemists and and urban planners all over the world who have got loads to offer this growing conversation about how do we address some of our biggest challenges so I just started reaching out and saying look do you fancy a chat? And they were like, "Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's get together." And so, so this this is fascinating. This is honestly that's that is so cool. Uh, aside from the fact they didn't call me, but whatever. The what I'm interested, in, and it kind of touches now on what we came here to talk about, right? Is and what you and I have talked about in the past, which is construction can learn so much from other sectors where other thing other sectors are innovating, getting efficiencies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and vice versa you've obviously now been going around speaking to lots of fascinating people can you tell us some of the things that you have picked up through those conversations and what you think the impact can be on the industry absolutely so the in terms of in terms of the people that we've been talking to this was i really really got stuck into sort of advanced materials for a while and you know there must be people trying to fix 
the things that are wrong who aren't in our sector and, and came across loads of actual chemists at the time. So, the, and they were all strangely just to add to your northeast centric. Chat. Oh, here we go. They're all Geordies. You <laughs> can't, at least you've gone far. Oh, God. You know, so, wait, you don't realize that when Keep you scout people. You, know, you, you, forget, you forget the collective genius of the northeast of our country. Um, <laughs> and, but, but through that process, you sort of came to, to find people who were creating, using the circular economy, using waste plastics to create uh, carbon negative and carbon neutral concrete blocks, which, which we thought were quite a way off, to be honest, um, using waste glass. Uh, that typically wouldn't be recycled to create um, high-performance nano aerogels that are fire-safe so that we don't have to worry about them catching fire and catching a light like a lot of the phenolic panels that we use in the industry. And then a bit further afield, there was people in in Australia who have made some fantastic relationships with who are marine biologists, and of course they are. They've got the, the Great Barrier Reef there. You know, they've got, they've got, it's their playground. Um, was it in Newcastle, and- Australia? Where you were speaking it, it, to people. Quite possibly, quite possibly in Newcastle, <laughs> Australia. Um, and they, these guys were at the University of Technology, Sydney, and, and have got a, a, another deep green biotech hub um, there. And they're using microalgae to consume CO2, so uh, to produce a high-value biomass. And the applications of this are insanely exciting for, for what we're doing, you know, it essentially means that you can have a bioreactor in a building that eats the air, you know, that you push, you pump you're, the air. You're, you're, you've got to slow down now, Oliver. I know you're a doctor, but I'm, I'm, I'm not keeping up. So, so how could it relate to construction? How could we build, how could we design this into our buildings? So there's a huge issue with uh, internal air quality um, in our buildings and, and also in our cities. You know, most of our UK cities breach World Health Organization limits of air quality. These guys have created a, a microalgae bioreactor, which is essentially just a big vat of water that's got microalgae in it. There's over 2,000 types of microalgae to choose from, dependent on the situation, the scenario, the context. Actually, until I met these guys, didn't realize that every second breath we take is down to algae. It's not forests that everybody thinks, it, and trees. It's, it's down to algae in our oceans. And these guys are using these big bioreactors and they're pumping dirty air through them and the algae eat the volatile organic compounds, all of the nasties in the air, all the CO2, and they grow. And then you can harvest that algae as a high value biomass. And that algae is currently being used for creating um, aviation fuel, bio-based aviation fuel, uh, normal biofuel, bioplastics. So th- I've got a lot of hopes pinned on these guys to sort of revolutionize the built environment and the way that we see carbon, you know, a huge problem with, uh, I've turned a corner in seeing carbon as a problem to seeing carbon as a, as a huge opportunity and carbon dioxide is a huge opportunity in that we, if we just harness it, you know, it's an entire, we've always been saying that it's an economy in itself, but it was more it's eradication was the economy prior to this. There's a massive opportunity to create really high value bio-based products using carbon dioxide, because we're never gonna get to a world where we're just not creating uh, carbon dioxide. Um, so so those, those guys were amazing. Um, we talked to some guys in, in the States and RMIT actually, who were and on, the, and on the West Coast of, of America, who were growing building components using a mushroom prefungus called mycelium 
and this stuff is amazing you know this is so this is basically when you grow mushrooms mushrooms grow on this really intricate tightly woven web of root system and you can grow it in any form so this mycelium it, it adapts to any shape or form work that you put it in so you can put it in a brick um, you can put it into a panel and it grows on any substrate as well or, or mostly any substrate so you can use waste plastics you could use waste coffee grounds you know any waste material so it totally supports the circular economy and over the course of about 10 days you end up with this growth of mycelium that is a hard compacted root network that, that is then baked at a low temperature and actually has incredible acoustic properties, fantastic thermal properties. It doesn't shatter like concrete bricks and, con and um, clay, brick clay bricks and concrete blocks do under seismic stress. It sort of fractures very gradually, so it's much more resilient to, to seismic activity. And then I talk about this, and people are like, oh, that, that's a total, it's a million miles away, that technology. A mind-blowing <laughs> It's not. It's not a million miles away. You know, we're we're working with the UK's biggest company, Biome, um, who are uh, total pioneers in this space to develop retrofit solutions and new build housing solutions um, for the YMCA and for for other other housing associations and, and and other affordable housing needs. So this stuff is happening right now, um, and that's why I say it's just an incredibly exciting space to be in in construction at the minute. It sounds it when and you must be really feeling like you're kind of at the forefront of these really exciting conversations actually seeing the different things that potentially could happen and it's really really fascinating to see it because or to hear it that's exactly why i wanted to bring you onto the show is because not everyone most of us are stuck in the traditional world doing our traditional day jobs trying to improve that do them as efficiently as possible but without really knowing what is going on kind of at the exciting forefront of the industry which is where you're at and i want to talk about much much more oliver but we'll just take a break here and we'll catch up after the break hello it's me again i wanted to share a quick story with you on why i co-founded ceiling with my best mate chris chris and i we're both qs's and this is going to sound sad but one night we were sat in the pub talking about subcontract tendering and we realised the industry had a problem. Number one, procurement was too paper-based. Number two, it was too time-consuming and every QS had their own unique way of doing things. And number three, perhaps most importantly, if you want to competitively tender, you need to know hundreds of the best subcontractors. We simply didn't. That's why we created C-Link. It's software to solve subcontract tendering. We wanted to remove these challenges and help the industry get better. So if you, or someone you know, tenders with subcontractors, you've got to see our software. Head over to our link, www.get.c-link.com forward slash podcast to find out more. I will include it in the description box. So again, there's no excuses. Now, let's get right back to the show. Oliver, 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 I know this must be interesting because you've even got a twinkle in the eye of the producer of Own the Build. Oh man, he, ta he's, he takes a lot <laughs> to be impressed that Mantos. But um, this is a really interesting conversation. I want to go back to something you said at the start when I was asking you about 
like your job description almost. What what are you, why is there a research director? What are you doing? And you talked about flashes of brilliance, and there's a flash of brilliance over there. But and your job is to kind of capture it and pull it all together, so that there's continued flashes of brilliance. Let's say, with the conversations that you've been having with these marine biologists, with these fungi experts in in the west coast of America, what is there anything where there is something tangible that is impacting what Ryder are doing today or like projects that are coming up where that flash of brilliance is coming into what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. I think that with, with our projects at the minute, all of part of the research uh, team here is about how do we apply some of that knowledge to, to our projects. So there's a very, there's a very thin layer of projects that are pilots and demonstrators coming down the line. And we often collaborate with universities and um, have our sort of funded PhD students working on those projects. So I mentioned the one with the YMCA, which is around creating a, a new model of affordable housing for young people, not in education, employment or training, but it uses advanced materials um, to do that. And it also retrofits existing housing stock because we've got an absolutely monumental task ahead of us in the industry with regards to, re- to retrofit and, and retrofitting our, our existing building stock. So that's a, good, a really good example of where we're working in a collaborative partnership with universities, with third sector, and people, startups at the edge of uh, pioneer and edge of our industry to, to really try to deliver a project as a demonstrator or a pilot. There's other instances where it's totally flipped around and the research team might track a project. So we've got a great project in Scotland at the moment that's looking at the retrofit of schools and what are the different options when we retrofit schools because we've got loads of schools. Um, we can't build everybody a new school and schools are that unusual typology that tend to have been built at one age and then added to every 10 years periodically for the last 50 years. So you need to retrofit at different points in different areas. It's just a a big old challenge. And uh, one of the research projects that we've got there is working with Scottish government to to look at how do they compare? You know, how does it compare when you do a bit of a light job on retrofit, a really deep retrofit, or when you just knock it down and build it again, which as we know, isn't really an option because it costs way too much carbon to do that. So how does it compare in terms of U-values, whatever? Cost, in terms of cost, program, carbon, they're the three main things that we've uh, compared them on, and environmental performance. And and actually what we've found is that there's very little daylight between any of those. I mean, the figures were startling when they came back in the cost, literally negligible in terms of the, the cost of uh, retrofit against new build. Now, you might see that as a negative, but it depends on where you stand in, on the old carbon debate and how urgent it is. Program, also negligible. We're talking a couple of weeks. But where there was absolute miles between them was the deep retrofit option was 50% uh, lower embodied carbon than the new, the new build option. And cl- clearly, that's where we need to you know, we, we need to be focusing our efforts and, and pushing towards. And so you've been leading that research piece or heavily involved in that research piece. You have an outturn. How does that then impact what the Scottish government, did you say it was? That, yeah. So has it now led them to think, right, we will go with the heavy retrofit option on all of these schools and that will be our way forward? Yes, I think it, it. Well, it's definitely kickstarted the conversation, and it's refocused the uh, policy making on embodied carbon. 
because it was something that we all knew to be important, but there's very little policy that's supporting embodied carbon at the moment and embodied carbon reductions. There's a lot of focus on operational carbon and how do we reduce operational energy of buildings, but there's not a lot of focus. Uh, there's not as much focus on on embodied carbon. So it's really it's a phrase, honestly, that I've only just started to become aware of. So it's now becoming one of those catchphrases that you start to hear or buzzwords almost that you start to hear. So just for clarity, embodied carbon is what exactly? So operational carbon is is any carbon that's produced in in and and, I, and I'm paraphrasing with within an inch of my life here. There's this, of but the, <laughs> generally generally speaking, operational carbon is is anything to do with the energy that's required to operate and run the building. Embodied carbon is anything that all of the energy that has gone into the creation of that brick, or 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 the concrete or the glass, uh, including its extraction from the earth, including its transport to the site, including the operating, operating and manufacturing procedures that it went through to get it to site. So it's an incredibly complex thing, but it's critically important that we get a handle on it. Otherwise, there's very little argument for reusing things. And actually, that's where we need to be. We need to be seeing our existing building stock as a huge bank of materials. You know, it's of like, oh, well, when you inherit a site, you might inherit a building that, and you, you know, you may or may want to retrofit that building. I would, I would strongly suggest that that's that's what you do. But there's loads of complexities uh, that are involved in that. But there's a ton of materials there. There's a ton of carbon that's already been spent, and there's a lot of money that's already been sunk into that site. That typically, up until this stage, someone would just turn up and demolish it, unless take it off site. Like grades, unless it's listed, English heritage listed. I, mean, I remember. So I come from. Uh, Stratford-upon-Avon, that's my hometown. Stratford-upon-Avon, very famous for Shakespeare, very famous for its theatre. And the theatre underwent a extensive pull-it-down and and, uh, rebuild it, I can't remember when, 10 years ago, let's say. And at the time, it was one of the few bigger projects, it wasn't a massive job, but one of the few bigger projects that I'd seen where they were forced to take down brick by brick and effectively build back brick by brick because it was... Uh, such an important historical building there was the drive for that but that to me I remember thinking oh that's really uncommon because as you say the majority is rip it down let's go and start again so that mentality is shifting now with circular economy embodied carbon all of those things and you're seeing that yeah definitely and and we're seeing influences different types of influences from all over the world so in our office in Vancouver there's a it's not common but it's more common that you might see demolition crew go into the site and re-grinding all of the concrete into aggregate to then be used uh, within the, the next construction process, which is, it's a total viable technology. It's been around for ages. We just tend not to do it because it, it, it incurs extra cost and extra steps. But what we're not seeing is we, we need this fundamental move away from short-termism and from cost into that long-term view around sort of um, planetary health and environmental health and understanding the long-term costs of, of, of not doing that, that. has to that has to come from the clients though that has to come from the very top right to drive it down because as we know we work in on the contracting side of the industry we work in a low margin high risk business which is why you have absolute short-termism it's a mentality that i'm not saying it's right but it, it exists because you've got no margin, you've got to get it done quick, and you've got to get it done as economically as possible. So it's that I I still toy with that, how that actually seeps 
through the industry. I can understand it on the bigger projects, perhaps, but where how that seeps through to the SMEs, I still am a bit troubled by that because I know what it's like to be in those businesses. I think I think we're we're just at a transitionary point where we're looking at the business model around this all a little bit wrong. So. The, an amazing conversation that we had with with a couple of our advanced material startup companies um, recently was there's an entire marketplace. It's about 380 billion in the states that's based around carbon offsets. Now, carbon offsets are like the wild west at the moment. You know, it's it, uh, 60 over 60 percent of carbon offsets are forestry based. Now, it might just be a, a cynical northeastern vibe that i'm bringing to this table but <laughs> no. i don't i don't trust that i'm not being sold the same tree that four thousand okay. other people are being sold yeah. in a carbon offsetting scheme you know I, I want to understand the mathematics of it i want to understand tangible how are they, what is happening well, how are they accounting to offset my carbon based on uh, what type of tree is it where is it growing how long are they how, how old is it? How mature is it? How much carbon is it taken out of the atmosphere? And it's to say the least at the minute, that industry is, it's fast and loose, that industry. Um, but what's really interesting is that there's a number of verification programs in the States. And, you know, maybe this is a model that we bring over to the UK where you can verify your offsets. So if, for instance, if you are a company that creates a carbon negative brick, then you can verify the amount of avoided emissions and then you can sell those offsets. This is an entire marketplace to people who are needing offsets to offset their own emissions. Now, it has to be it has to be a carbon negative product and you can't sell all of your carbon negative quota, otherwise you're both just carbon neutral, if you get me. And it can't be a carbon neutral product because then you're no longer carbon neutral, you're carbon positive. So you, you, you can't really sell that. So if we can push the industry fast enough and far enough into developing carbon negative buildings and really get a handle on the circular economy, then we're going to be in a position where there's actually some serious money to be made um, in bringing up the global economy by being able to, to sell verified offsets from our construction projects potentially. I have to say, it's, I came into this conversation thinking we'd talk about, and we already have talked about, other sectors that could impact UK construction. But it's interesting talking to you, someone who has sits in a company where there's offices across the globe. I used to do the same, but um, we were perhaps not quite as dynamic at the, as my company at knowledge sharing, and that's your exact task. But you're actually talking about things we can learn from Canada, the way that they're doing things there, things we can learn from America, and that they can learn from us, and then we can bring that all in, which is which is fascinating. And I can see the energy, and I can see that it feels to me like you're relatively optimistic about where we're headed. Oliver. Is that a fair assumption for me to make? Yeah, I think it is. I think eighty percent of the time you catch me on a day like today, and and you'd you know, be miserable. The future, <laughs> the future, the future is bright for the sector in the way it is. But you know, I've also been charged quite quite recently and quite a lot with saying that we're you know we're facing a great a great extinction level event of construction professionals, and that people aren't really adhering or taking notice of how quickly we need to change and how fast we need to change the way that we do things there's only going to be a limited window of time to get on board with a new way of doing things. So those that don't push that boundary and, and adopt those uh, views. That's, that that strikes me as the new title of this episode, the extinction of the construction professional. 
the great extinction that, of the construction but profession. what do you what do you mean by if we don't get on board with this that doesn't i hear what you're saying but i'm not sure if it fully is resonating with me so if you what don't do you mean so, by it so for instance there's, there's certain companies you work with certain uh, elements of the built environment industry who are better at doing things than others you know you 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 would construct a design team of partners if you've got a net zero building to deliver with businesses that you know understand it get it and can deliver that level of work and not everybody is upskilling at the same time in the sector or what tends to happen is there's a knee-jerk reaction for everybody to put some information out there to talk about um, net zero futures or to talk about MMC and then it, it, that's it lip service you know it's not what are we doing next and how are we really pushing this and pioneering in this space in order to survive and, and see realize that sort of net zero future and so do you believe that construction companies and well construction companies will go in inverted commas extinct if they are not focused on this if they are paying this lip service i, I, I absolutely i see absolutely no future for a business that isn't focused on sustainable construction because you know the whole energy market's changing we've seen that and we are we are wonderful at being <laughs> being stalwart oh our, we're good at it in our view oh, this is never gonna change nothing's <laughs> ever gonna happen we're gonna be just yeah. fine doing what we've been doing for 200 years it's not not a chance. You know, this is this is a this is a global it's a global movement. There's there's forces that economic forces, environmental forces at play that are pushing this fast and far. And and the companies that don't get on board are going to miss out. I, I, I actually haven't thought about it in such clinical terms, but we have talked about it relatively recently with a finance uh, development finance broker um, who was talking about all the money let's call it green money for the sake of making the conversation easy that is coming in and it's coming in and it's focused on sustainable construction sustainable property sustainable development and you are absolutely right there is a whole wave coming in and i do think i'm just gonna have to rename this the extinction of the extinction of the construction professional i think you've nailed it there. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's fascinating conversation with you honestly can I ask one final question? If you could describe kind of like one ambition that you have for construction to achieve this decade, what would that be? Oh my goodness. Uh, Come on, you're with Future Build, you're talking about all these the decade, interesting things. The decade is the time the time stamp is the challenge. Um I want I want to see free energy. Um, you know, and it's very timely. You know, there there are absolutely solutions for people to be off grid, to be decoupling from the grid, and to be adopting renewable energies at whole scale levels on in in terms of communities. But we don't galvanise as communities. We don't galvanise as individuals in a community. We're often sort of picked off by energy providers one by one. There is with the the state of play with technology and renewable technologies, we can realise this now but we are just not working in concert and we are not focused on developing clean energy communities and also off-grid communities um, to the extent that we should be because it would add way more energy resilience to our country. It would dra dramatically improve people's lives um, if we weren't all facing these huge energy bills. And the problem with it is nobody wants to do it because it shakes up an ingrained existing system where people don't want to change the rules of the game. 
but we're already seeing those rules begin to to shift. Crack yeah, and you are right. And, yeah. and so that's what your ambition is: free energy and greener cities. I think greening our cities and nature-based design solutions are one of the biggest things that we need to get right in the next ten years. If you, we need way more trees in our cities. We need to view trees as critical infrastructure because they are going to help us mitigate the climate uh, impact over the coming years. You know, when we design a building, we look at a climate adaptation plan for a proper database that tells us to 2050 to 2080, what are the likely um, temperatures of that area? We need to be adopting that in our placemaking and in, in our cities because, you know, it's probably not ridiculous to say that the temperature in Newcastle will be, be exceedingly, wild. exceedingly <laughs> like higher than it is now <laughs> in, in 15, 20 years' time. You can't, you can't plant a tree in 15, 20 years' time and expect it to do 30 years of growing so that it can mitigate those urban, urban heat islings. So we need to be really thinking about how do we future-proof our cities with green infrastructure today. Oliver, you are a fascinating individual and it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. When I do the podcast description, I'm going to be sharing Oliver's details, Ryder's details. Oliver, next time you're looking for uh, interesting individuals to speak to, you know, maybe maybe if I can get on that list, you know, I'm happy to have a chat. I haven't got much, but I can maybe give you five, ten minutes. It's been very (laughs) one-sided, mate. You know, I feel like like we need to do a rerun and and I'll ask you a load of questions. It's going to be a a very, very dry episode and all the listeners will attest to that. (laughs) No, real pleasure to have you on the show, Oliver. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, speak to you soon, mate. Thanks a lot, Will.